Uh, Good morning again. Glad you're here. If you have a copy of God's Word, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2. We're still working through the book of Mark chronologically, verse by verse. So last week, we wrapped up uh, with verse 17, an encounter between Jesus and uh, some of his opponents, his at this point, just kind of ideological, philosophical opponents. They don't understand who he is yet. They're trying to fit him into boxes that he doesn't fit into. Uh, and slowly, as we're going to see today, this sort of uh, conflict between Jesus and the people who oppose him, it's going to develop. It's going to develop and develop and develop to the point that he goes from being a nuisance to enough of an enemy that people will plot his demise and eventually successfully murder him. Uh, Today is the 14th Sunday that we've been in the Gospel of Mark, so if you're keeping track of that, you can put another scratch on the wall. Uh, We're going to look specifically at verses 18 through 22 this morning, Uh, our objective being to understand the context of what's happening, then to look at a question that Jesus has asked, and to analyze as best we can his answer with some cross-references to other bits of teaching uh, that he gave about this same subject. When we, started, when we started Mark chapter 2, which actually happened back in 2022, uh, we entered into what's a series of kind of five conflicts that Jesus has. So Mark chapter 2 opens up in verse 1 with the story of a man who does not have use of his arms or legs. He's paralyzed. And his friends famously tear a hole in the roof of the house where Jesus is, uh, most likely in the city of Capernaum, probably Simon Peter's house, and they lower their friend down. At that point, Jesus sees the faith of the friends, who we believe are probably still standing around the edges of this hole in the roof, and because of their faith, he says to the man out loud, your sins are forgiven. Well, immediately his opponents, the Pharisees, the law keepers, are very upset about that because only God can forgive sins, and they can't believe that Jesus is God. And so Jesus, knowing their thoughts, turns to them and he says, what would it be harder for me to do? What would actually convince you that I am who I say I am? That I can forgive sins or that I can heal this man of his paralysis? And so he turns back to the man whose sins have been forgiven. But to be honest, that's not exactly why he showed up that day. He was really hoping to get back use of his limbs. And Jesus says, get up and walk. You're going to be just fine. And the man gets up and he's able to move and it proves and shows everybody that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is God in the flesh, that he has command over all of creation, not just the physical body, though he does have command of that, but also the spiritual, that he can forgive the sins of the man as well. So that's conflict number one. Last week we looked at conflict number two, where Jesus is uh, interacting again with this group of people, the Pharisees. He doesn't necessarily intend to do that, but they come to him and they find him where he is at a party with a man named Levi at Levi's house. Jesus, having just the day before or possibly even that morning, called Levi out of his tax collector's booth where he was essentially public enemy number one in the city of Capernaum. And Jesus called him to himself. Levi has, has found a rabbi to follow. This is the beginning of total life change for him. And so he throws a big dinner party and invites lots of his peers who are also publicly reviled and hated. And it's in the midst of that party where Jesus is spending time with the kinds of people that the Pharisees would never spend time with that we find the second conflict. They approach Jesus' disciples and they say, what's he doing eating with this kind of people? Jesus overhears, he comes outside, probably into the garden or into the doorway of the house because the Pharisees wouldn't go into the party. They're those kind of guys. And uh, he says to them, I came to be with the sick. I'm a physician and a physician spends time with sick people to heal them. A physician doesn't spend time with people who think they're well, wasting his time trying to convince them that they're sick. He goes where the sick are and he provides healing. And then of course we read last week how Matthew, who used to be Levi, his name has changed, that his account includes a quote from Hosea 6, and that from Matthew's perspective, Jesus was trying to instruct the Pharisees using their own Old Testament law, that if their hearts had been changed, 
and they truly were trying to align themselves with the will of God, that they would have been in there with him, in that party, with those kinds of people that nobody wanted to make eye contact with or associate with. Now, when the Bible uses the word Pharisee, I haven't spent a lot of time with you so far on this idea. It's talking about a category of person that I think you and I would struggle to find an exact modern-day example of. Uh, So what I want to try to do is just quickly, for the sake of your mindset today, because the Pharisees play a pretty central role, again, in what's going to happen here in Mark chapter 2, verse 18, I want to try to take three categories that I think you do have, and we're going to dump them in a bowl and mix it, and you're going to get an idea of what a Pharisee was in Jesus' day and age. So the first kind of person I want you to think of, if you want to understand the mindset of a Pharisee, is a pastor. So I'm a pastor. Uh, You've probably had other pastors at other churches that you've been a part of. But don't just think of any old pastor. Think of the kind of pastor who maybe has one or more doctorates. Again, not a bad thing necessarily, but in addition to having those doctorates, insists that you always refer to them as Dr. whatever their name is. In every setting, no matter what, it's on the sign in front of the church, pastor, doctor, reverend, whatever his name is, right? These are the kinds of men sometimes that we encounter in church settings, and it's not always an employee of the church, it's not always a pastor, but it's usually a man who considers himself a gifted teacher or preacher, kind of an overseer, and he likes to lord that over other people. That's the first category of person that I want you to hold on to in your mind's eye. That's what the Pharisees were like. They were not just faithful to God's law because they thought it was right, I'm using air quotes for faithful because Jesus actually confronts them at different points and says that inside, in their hearts and in their minds, they're not actually faithful. It's all just kind of a stage production, but we're going to get there, so I don't want to say too much about that. But even though they could keep the law externally, they could show other people, look, this is what law keeping looks like, they weren't doing it for any good reason. And the byproduct of their law keeping wasn't that anybody got help or that anybody felt like they could access God better or that anybody could receive wisdom or teaching or the kinds of things that people need, the reasons that they would come and meet with a pastor. The reason these guys were so good at law keeping is because they wanted to prove themselves to each other and they wanted to prove themselves to the people around them that they thought were less than they were and they were even trying to prove themselves to God. We're thinking about the kind of pastor who wants the title so that he feels bigger and so that you feel smaller. That's an important part of the mindset of the Pharisees. Second is, if you can mix together that personality with the personality of like uh, your idea of a political celebrity. Now you may not think of politicians as celebrities, but they're in the news all the time. They're all over Twitter. And even locally, we're right in the midst of a campaign season for um, our local assemblymen and women. And so each of our districts has multiple signs competing for your attention and trying to appeal to your sense of justice. Imagine the kind of person who is instantly recognizable to you because of the policies that they represent, whether that's good or bad or ugly from your perspective. The kind of person who has weighed in on issues Uh, with such an extreme position and so vocally for so long that you probably know without even asking them where they land on the different issues that are up for debate in our culture. So that's part of the Pharisees as well. The Pharisees represent the Old Testament law, which is not just a set of religious guidelines. It actually carries with it sets of penalties in the same way that our law does here in Anchorage. The difference being that the penalties of the Old Testament law tend to be more spiritual, and so it's even scarier. Uh, whereas, you know, maybe you, your heart skips a little bit of a beat when a police officer pulls behind you on the highway, and you just look down for a second, right, and you make sure we're all good with the brake lights and the speed, and everybody's got their seatbelt on. It's similar to having a Pharisee walk behind you through the market. The difference is, if you're stopped on the highway, probably the worst that's going to happen to you is a police officer is going to fine you. They're going to give you a ticket you're going to have to pay. It's going to be a pain in the neck to deal with, but you were speeding, so it's your fault. 
If a Pharisee pulls up behind you at a red light, that could ultimately mean, if you believe that they have the authority that they say they do, that could ultimately mean that you walk away believing that now you're condemned to hell forever. And you weren't right before that sort of religious traffic stop happened. So we have the mindset of a person who wants a big title, a big uh, kind of religious and spiritual identity to wield as a weapon to put other people down. We have this sort of political celebrity where as they walk through the street, people are very aware of them and they kind of keep their distance, but at the same time, they're a little bit impressed because these guys do keep the law perfectly. So those are two. Here's the third ingredient that I want you to mix in to try to understand the idea of what a Pharisee is. It's a sense of false piety. And this is the reason why, and we're going to read this in just a few minutes, when Jesus encounters the Pharisees, his favorite word for them is hypocrite. That's the big label that he slaps on any Pharisee or any of the scribes, which are like the disciples of the Pharisees, that encounter him. Because their piety, their sense of religious obedience, is fake. It's all false. All the same laws that they want to police you about, they have no intention of keeping in their hearts and minds. They'll do what they have to on the outside, to prove to you and me that they maybe will get into heaven at least further in line up than we are. But on the inside, their ambition is not to know God. Their ambition is not to be near to God. They don't really want God to be a big part of their lives. They want to use God's system to build their own kingdom. So for the, the Pharisees, they would only say what was politically correct in public. This actually happens over and over again in the Gospels. When they approach Jesus and they challenge his ideas, he almost always tosses a question back their way before he answers their question. And that question is supposed to kind of be divisive, not in the sense that it makes them angry, but it's supposed to force them to quit waffling back and forth on the political fence and pick a side. And so oftentimes they just go away. He asks them a question and they just kind of slip back in the crowd because they have no intention of producing a soundbite that would prove that their hypocrisy is true. And Jesus knows this. This is often why he doesn't really engage with the questions that they ask because they're not really genuinely asking to understand. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to back him in a corner so they can prove him wrong and prove themselves right. They're also quick to cancel anybody who fails publicly. Any Pharisee, any part of their party who compromises themselves with sin was cast out and treated like a dog in their midst. Uh, a lot of times they had their own twisted brand of celebrity based on their public image. We're talking about things that you may be familiar with in the workplace. Things like indirect intimidation, right? Nobody's ever going to get right in your face. But you know when certain people walk past your desk and give you that look that something's not going well. That they're out to get you maybe, that they're watching you to see if you're going to fail. Mix that in a little bit with sort of this indirect sense of power. No Pharisee could just walk into your home unannounced and begin to tell you what to do, but he could manipulate your family by the way that he taught the Old Testament scrolls in synagogue. And he could be sure to walk by your particular booth where your family sells the fish that you catch, and he could make certain comments, or he could hang around somebody else's booth where they sell things and, and draw attention or activity that way. There was a lot of indirect power in the comings and goings, even the financial life of people in the ancient Near East. And then finally, and worst of all, is indirect condemnation. A Pharisee would rarely confront you. A Pharisee would rarely call you out and shame you publicly, but you would know that if you accidentally crossed a Pharisee on a Tuesday, by Thursday, everybody else in town would be treating you like a pariah. Not associating with you anymore. Kids would stop playing with your kids at school. People would no longer do business with you and your family. All because a Pharisee pulled the, the right strings behind the scenes to make sure that you were shamed or that you paid some kind of price for embarrassing them or wronging them on some level. So these guys are dangerous. 
This helps us, I hope, understand why when we get to Matthew 23 and we read about Jesus calling this whole group of people, thousands of men, a pit of vipers, when he uses that language, it kind of make, makes us go, oh gosh, Jesus, did you have to say it like that? I mean, it's a little bit harsh, isn't it? No, it's actually a really accurate way to describe a group of people that function like a pit full of snakes. That's what they want, is to have somebody stumble into their midst so that they can devour them. That's what they're looking for. It's the same idea that we see if you're familiar with the Old Testament of the Bible again and again. The prophets play this role. The priests often play this role where they start out on God's team, but they become corrupted by power, by the opportunity to make more money, to have more influence, and to live more comfortably. And they don't sacrifice their life in Jesus' name. They don't give up their own wants and their own will like a disciple. They play games with God's law to build their own thing. This is a Pharisee. These are the kinds of people that confront Jesus in Peter's home when he heals a man and forgives his sin. These are the kinds of men who approach Jesus at Levi's house and try to sneakily pull aside his disciples and make them uncomfortable with Jesus' behavior. Thankfully, Jesus hears them and comes out and confronts them. And this is the same group of people that are going to be compared to Jesus here in Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, in a way that I think is supposed to disqualify Jesus. The Pharisees' desire is to show perfect obedience to the law externally in a way that makes Jesus look foolish, that makes him seem like he doesn't understand the Jewish world very well, that essentially ruins his reputation and disqualifies his teaching. Of course, as we know, they don't succeed. That's sort of the spoiler for you there, that as they try to confront Jesus, he's better, he's smarter, he's more prepared than they think he's going to be, and they end up falling on their faces. So, if you will, look now at Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Now, John's disciples, okay, take a quick break. Who is John? John is not John who wrote John's gospel. John is Jesus' cousin, John the baptizer. So we read about him back in Mark chapter one. He baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River. Jesus sees heaven torn open. He sees the spirit of God descend on him. That's the John that we're talking about here. John who prepared the way for Jesus in the wilderness. So he has disciples. So we're, think, we're thinking of that group, John's disciples and, the Bible tells us, the Pharisees, so two separate groups. John is not a Pharisee. He's not that gross mix of those three personalities that I just explained to you. Okay, they are both fasting. John and his disciples, the Pharisees, they're fasting. Fasting in Bible terms means choosing not to eat any food or very much food in the name of some kind of religious ritual. So it might mean just bread and water for a number of days. It might mean for a shorter fast, just water for three or four days. It's an attempt to show God how dedicated you are to him by choosing not to eat and meet your own needs. It's an act of faith in this context. So they're doing that. These two groups of people are doing it, and people have heard about it. That's what the next words tell us. People came and said to Jesus this question. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, choose not to eat, in order to observe this religious ritual. But your disciples don't, Jesus. You guys are not fasting. We don't understand this. Jesus answers them in verse 19, and he says a question, as he often does. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. And I'll just have to take Jesus' word for it. I, didn't, I don't know about this. This is what he's saying. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. 
And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Again, maybe not the most relevant analogy for you, but dead right in the middle of the culture of the people that Jesus is talking to. He says, if you do this, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine will be destroyed, as will the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, unlike the first two clashes that Jesus has with the Pharisees, with these law keepers, this one is more indirect. The first two times the Pharisees come to Jesus or they come to his disciples and they confront him directly. This time there's a group of people. You can think of this categorically as the crowd that we talked about last week. Not the disciples who follow, but the crowd who shows up, gets a good teaching, gets something for their Instagram stories, and heads home for the next few days. Okay, This same group of people that don't really know, they have a lot of questions and they're just trying to figure out who Jesus is. They come to him and they compare the Pharisees to Jesus. So remember here, Jesus is not necessarily directly confronting his opponents, but he is confronting the idea of their practice. What we find out is that essentially there are four groups, and each of these four groups in this story is doing something different from the others. So I want to just quickly, if I can, lay that out for you. We have first the Pharisees and their scribes. We've talked about them at length so far today, so I think you have a good mental image of who they are. Next, we have John the Baptist and his apprentices. We know who John is. He's a good guy. He's this interesting bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so oftentimes, we find John doing Old Testament things, which means he looks a lot like the Pharisees. But his heart and the reasons that he does those things are actually really good New Testament things. So he can be a little bit confusing. But in this particular instance, he's likely fasting out of obedience to God's law in the Old Testament. Then we have Jesus and his disciples. And then finally, we have the crowd and their question. Now the Pharisees are fake, they're posturing, they're performative, they're false. They manipulate, they're legalistic in the most literal sense of the word. Jesus' counter to them is the opposite. He's genuine, he's humble, he's personal, he's open-handed, he's very gracious with everybody that he meets. Uh, We know who the crowd is, a mixed bag of men and women who come from every career and financial background that you can imagine in the ancient Near East. Uh, And the only thing that they all have in common, what makes them a crowd, is that they want to see Jesus and they have questions. So that's who the groups are. What is it that they're doing? This is important for the sake of the arguments that the Bible is making today. The Pharisees are fasting. We know this. We know maybe why they're fasting. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But what I want you to understand is the fasting of the Pharisees is the wrong thing. So the fasting is inappropriate. Jesus will explain why in just a minute. And they're doing the wrong thing for the wrong reason, because they're Pharisees. So they're trying as best they can to participate in this endless cycle of doing churchy stuff to impress churchy people, maybe the best way for you to think about that. But it's the wrong thing, the fast is inappropriate, and they're doing it for the wrong reason. We have John the Baptist and his apprentices. They are also fasting, wrong thing, But right reason, because John has the right heart. John's intention is to be close to God. It's to obey the law of God, to be near to God the Father, and to know him and to be in relationship with him. Again, John's in this interesting position where he's a bridge between two very different worlds. And so oftentimes the things that he's doing, which he's learned from Old Testament teachers, they're going to warp and they're going to change to the point that I think if John hadn't had his head cut off in just a few chapters, he would have been one of Jesus' most loyal disciples and probably one of the more effective apostles on into the new church age. But that happens and so he loses his life and doesn't have the chance. Then we have Jesus' team and they are not fasting, which is the right thing also for the right reason. So we have Pharisees, wrong thing, wrong reason. We have John, wrong thing, right reason. We have Jesus, right thing, right reason. And then finally, we have 
the crowd, and they don't know any of this stuff. They have no things and no reasons. They're just asking. They're trying to understand which of these three groups is right, and, and where do you fit Jesus, and we have these laws and expectations, so what are we supposed to do with this? Well, I think that leads us to the question, why would anybody fast in this day and age? You and I might consider fasting to be a spiritual discipline. Uh, I'll tell you that eventually I think it's something that we'll preach through, probably in a short three or four part series, dealing with it as a discipline. How does it impact our spiritual formation? What does the New Testament really have to say about it? But in the context in which Jesus lives, there's no real idea of spiritual formation or spiritual discipline yet. Fasting is something you would do just to be obedient without knowing what it's going to do for you, without really having any understanding of why it's even important. It's something that God commanded, and therefore it was important that people do it. Now what's interesting is, is the only day that Yahweh commanded all of Israel to fast is what's called the Day of Atonement. It's pretty much the pinnacle of the calendar year for the Israelite people. It's the moment when there's crazy rich imagery about Jesus that people don't get yet because he hasn't come, but there's a lamb and you lay hands on it and you confess sins and its blood covers over you and it wanders away and there's all these bits and pieces that really run parallel to what Jesus is going to do with his life and his death and his resurrection. On that day, nobody eats because they need to be focused. But what's interesting is, as was the case in most of the law at the time that Jesus was alive, the Pharisees have added all kinds of rules to that one idea. So now, at this point in religious history, the Pharisees have what's called a rabbinic tradition or a rabbinic commentary that's almost like a Book of Mormon. If you have ever known a Mormon who wants you to read the Book of Mormon and they tell you, you really can't understand the Bible unless you read this along with it, that's the role that the rabbinic commentaries played as well. They were not considered the same level of revelation as the Old Testament scriptures. But if you weren't reading the rabbinic tradition, you didn't really know what was going on in the coolest circles at synagogue on Saturday. Maybe that doesn't matter to you, but it was pretty important to the Pharisees. So this part of this rabbinic tradition said that we don't just fast on the Day of Atonement, which God commanded, but we fast every Monday and we fast every Thursday. So it's very possible that what's going on in the context of this story is not the Day of Atonement, because I believe Jesus would have observed those ritual feasts. He observes them at every other point that we see in his ministry. What's probably going on here is it's just a Monday, or it's just a Thursday afternoon, and John the Baptist and his disciples being raised and, and brought up underneath the rabbinic tradition, they're just doing what everybody does, and the Pharisees are fasting because they want to make sure that they impress everybody else and that they don't accidentally get like a, a, an A- minus or a B-plus on their religious report card that they're going to have to show to their rabbis and get embarrassed and get potentially kicked out. So it's all very performative for them. And the crowd's looking at Jesus, and he and his disciples are, seem to not be participating. Fasting for the Pharisees is not just about proving themselves to God. It's basically a whole stage production, including like makeup, and if they had lights, there would have been lights, but there's, there's this sense of literally them changing their appearance to try to make sure that everybody that they encounter, the whole day that they're fasting, has no doubt that they're fasting and feels really bad for them that they're fasting. Uh, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives us some commentary on how warped fasting had become in common practice in his day. He says this, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. There you go. There's his favorite label for the Pharisees. For they disfigure their faces so that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast... Anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, who is in eternity. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
Now, Jesus is very direct here. He's using a common example to the people he's teaching in Matthew 6, and he's saying, don't do that. (laughs) These guys are well-known. You know what it looks like to be a Pharisee on a fast day, on a Monday or Thursday. Just basically don't do what they do, and you'll be fine. You'll be a lot better. Uh, There's very few examples in our modern context of people we can look at and say, hey, just don't do anything that person does, and your life will go really, really well. That's what Jesus is saying to these people. Use them as a negative example and walk away from what it is that they're doing. Now, what do we pick up from Matthew 6 about the Pharisees? That when they fast, they look sad. And they're not really sad. They're actually full to the brim of pride and ego because they're scoring religious points left and right and impressing each other and out-fasting one another, which is just a crazy way to think about any spiritual practice. But when they fast, they look sad and they're faking it. We know that because Jesus says that they disfigure their faces. Now, that doesn't just mean that they frown because they want people to think that they're having a bad day. We actually know from church tradition that sometimes they wore makeup. Sometimes they would take light-colored clay and they would mix it with water and they would put a thin layer like foundation all over their faces to make them look washed out and pale and malnourished. They would take ashes from their campfires and rub all over their body and their skin to look like they were in mourning. Many Pharisees had an extra set of clothes, kind of like you have that one old t-shirt and those sweatpants in your drawer that you wear when it's time to paint a new wall in your house. They had clothes like that that were just for fast days, where they would cut holes with knives and scissors in strategic areas, because they would never expose themselves. Like They would be very careful to stay modest, but they would also show as much skin as they could, because they wanted to score both sets of points. They want you to think that they're really, really careful when it comes to being religious and modest, but also that they're so sad that they tore their clothes, and they would wear those clothes only on fasting days. And they wouldn't bathe, and they wouldn't brush their teeth, And of course, they wouldn't eat, and they would drag themselves through the city, sometimes acting like they were physically injured. They would maybe come to your place of business, and they would just lay in the doorway of your shop. And then nobody would do business with you for the whole day. That's what I'm saying when I tell you there was this sense of indirect manipulation that's connected directly to the way that they keep the law. It's a whole power system for them. And so they would do that where everybody would see them. They would moan and groan when you would walk by. Occasionally, people would even offer them money thinking that they were beggars, and they would wave that off. No, 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 because that takes away some of the points that they're scoring. Jesus says whatever it is that they think that they're earning, they get it all at once right there in the dirt in the city streets, that there's nothing going on in eternity based on that fasting. Zilch. Zero. That fasting doesn't do anything for God. It doesn't change his mind. It doesn't sway him. It doesn't get his attention. Now, maybe that begs the question for you, why? Is God fickle? Is he vindictive against the Pharisees? I think I would be. You probably feel that way when we describe them. They're pretty mean guys, and I don't like them very much. But that's not what motivates God. The reason that God is not in their fasting is because he's not invited. They don't want him. They want to use his thing that he built to build their kingdom. And that is the root of every problem that exists in every religious institution all over the world. This didn't go out of fashion when Jesus went to the cross. This is in us too. And we have to be very, very careful, especially as a church that is intentionally leaning into spiritual practices, that we do not invent a new game where we can slam dunk on other Christians and prove ourselves. When we do that, we have lost the point. And not only have we lost the point, but we run the risk of misleading people like our children or new believers or folks who don't know Jesus down a road that leads to destruction. If you want to choose to embrace destruction for yourself and dress it up in religious trappings and spray paint Jesus' name on the side of it, that's up to you. You have free will to do that. That's fine. But when we begin to lead other people down a road that convinces them 
that they're somehow appeasing God or convincing him not to be angry with them or earning their salvation, we become culpable to the point that Jesus said it would be better to take an enormous rock and turn it into a necklace and then jump in the water than to mislead somebody else that way. That's his strongest indictment against these law-keeping Pharisees. And that's the reason that he uses such harsh language with them. Jesus says the pity party that these guys are throwing for themselves, that's all they get. There is nothing more for them. No matter how dramatic, how public, how ugly their tears are, this sad religious stage play isn't spiritual. It may be somber, it may be impressive, it might be offensive or shocking to you if you've never been around it. You might say, how could anybody do this if it wasn't real? Well, when you're scoring enough social points, you'll do almost anything. This does not exist in the spiritual realm. And God is not fickle, God has never been a part of it. From the beginning, the hypocrites have chosen to use one of God's tools for spiritual formation, fasting, which could be extremely productive in their lives. But instead, they're going to use it for their own goals. And so really, it's just a rebranded exercise in empty human foolishness. So should we be that surprised that Jesus and his disciples are not participating? Would we really want them to? If Jesus had gone along with the status quo, wouldn't that lower your sense of how bold and how brave and how strong and and how mighty to save he really is? If Jesus just jumped in with the religious status quo and went through the motions, and yeah, he taught a little differently, and maybe he's God in the flesh, and so that means that even though he does everything the Pharisees do, he still dies for our sins at the end of his life, it wouldn't be as good. It's good for us that Jesus goes a different way, and it demonstrates that Jesus is true to himself, which is what we need. We need him to be God in the flesh in a way that no Pharisee could ever be. We can't attain that. We can't elevate ourselves to the point that we become better by way of what we've done. We need Jesus to give us that life. And then we practice disciplines and practices so that we can grow into the life that God has bought for us. So I'll say this to you kind of in summary of what's wrong with these Pharisees' perspective. Spiritual practices and spirituality are not spells and they're not charms. The heart of the person who fasts is the only thing that ultimately makes any difference in whether that fasting matters or not. So if fasting helps you get your heart right, then you should fast. And if your heart is totally removed, your spirit is totally removed from a practice like fasting, you should never fast. It's a waste of your time. It's not going to just like, there's no alarm clock in God's like bedroom in heaven that goes off when somebody starts to fast and he goes, we got a serious Christian on our hands here. Where's the, I need the SWAT team angels to get down there and make sure that everything they want is taken care of. When the heart of a person who truly wants to know God is aligned with him, fasting becomes a way of life as prayer becomes a way of life. As evangelism becomes a way of life, as each of the disciplines, silence and solitude and simplicity and stewardship, all of these things become a way of life. We can't back our, the, the truck of our life into God's sovereignty by trying to work our way into his presence. We start with Jesus, we start with the Spirit of God, and then we live that life out. And at times and in certain circumstances that we'll talk about later, this isn't really a sermon about fasting, later on we'll deal with this, but there are times and places where fasting is totally appropriate for a believer in Jesus Christ. We'll get there together, my friends. So take that commentary from Jesus in Matthew 6 if you can. Try to grab that with your mental hands and connect it to what's going on in Mark 2 because it's the same Jesus teaching and asking the question and instructing both groups. What is the assumption of the Pharisees based on what we've learned so far? It's this. The Pharisees assume that true religion is a solemn, joyless affair. So if you practice like a Pharisee, 
don't be surprised when you become like a Pharisee. That's the way it works. If to you, true religion is joyless and somber and sad and full of ashes on your forehead and makeup that makes people worry about you and a big dramatic religious act that tries as hard as it can to get everybody to look at you and pay attention to you and feel really bad for how hard your life is, you're not going to get closer to God by doing that. You might score some points. Maybe somebody will ask you to teach a three-week class on fasting. Maybe that'll feel really good. Maybe that's your life goal. I don't know. Jesus says there is a reward, but it happens here and now, and that's all you get. Instead, Jesus is going to represent a different way forward. He's going to help us understand that you can be spiritual and still have a good time. You can be spiritual and be filled to the brim with joy, that actually that's very much what he came to do, and that's what's on offer for you and I. So this is what's normal in Israel, is for these Pharisees, by example, to teach everybody that they meet that on fasting days, two days a week, that you have to be sad and upset and make a mean face and wear ripped clothes and not bathe and not eat and basically be uncomfortable and unhappy to the glory of God, which is not how it works, okay? This is the status quo. And it's not just in the big city of Jerusalem, it's everywhere. It's to the point that even John the Baptizer and his apprentices are participating. Now again, I don't think John's heart is wrong, but he's just playing with the cards he's been dealt. Jesus and his church have not been established with this entire new set of teaching, and John hasn't been around Jesus a whole lot. So when and where the Spirit inspires John, yeah, he'll go the right way, but mostly what he does is practice Judaism as he was taught by his own rabbis and by the Pharisees themselves, because they're in charge. Now, Jesus is on the scene, and he very clearly is not fasting. I think that's probably obvious on fasting days. If we, as an entire city, chose not to eat every Monday, and you walked by my house and you could smell pancakes cooking, you would have some questions for me, wouldn't you? Like, can I come inside and eat some of those pancakes? And we won't tell anybody about that. That's going to be between, yes, right, so that's what you, okay. So for Jesus and his disciples, where are they? They're in Capernaum. They're staying at whose house? Probably Simon Peter's house. Who cooks most of the food at Peter's house? Peter's mother-in-law. Who almost died and was saved from a deadly fever by Jesus? Peter's mother-in-law. What is the family profession in Peter's home? Catching fresh fish every day. If you don't think Peter's mother-in-law was putting together the finest freshly prepared fish meals three times a day for this man who just saved her life a couple weeks ago, you got another thing coming. Jesus is not just eating he and his disciples are eating good, I have to believe. I mean, very, very well. This woman is older, and she is laying it all out for them, man. Every day, Jesus, you saved me. I love you. I have nothing else to offer you. I have no standing in the civilization into which I was born because I'm an old woman who lives with her son, son-in-law and daughter, so this is what I have, and I'm, just, I'm offering everything I have to you. Sharp juxtaposition here, sharp contrast, if you don't know what juxtaposition means. Sharp contrast between what everybody else is doing and the way that Jesus is practicing his faith in Yahweh, his faith in God the Father. Remember, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He believes he's fulfilling it. So this is really confusing. This is, hopefully now, all of this context is becoming clear for you. This is the world into which this question is asked. Why? Why would you do this, Jesus? What could possibly motivate you to go a different way? I want you to hear it from Jesus again himself. This is Mark chapter 2, 19 and 20. Jesus answered the crowd and he said, wedding guests, which very confusing. We were not talking about a wedding, Jesus. What does that mean? But follow the analogy. Wedding guests can't fast while the groom is with them. Can they? No, I would say I've never been to a bachelor party where we didn't eat at all, okay? As long as you have the groom with you, you don't fast. But the days are coming when the groom will be taken from you, and at that time, you will fast again. 
So maybe you can see the connection between Matthew chapter 6 and Mark chapter 2. The problem with the Pharisees' philosophy of fasting was that by acting sad and being generally dramatic and drumming up attention and scoring lots of religious points, all in the name of somehow getting closer to God, they were missing the point that there's a wedding coming up and the groom is here and you can hang out with him and you're invited to his bachelor party. Like This is the opportunity that you have is to enter into this feast, not fast. This sense of celebration because somebody has come you've been waiting for and he's going to change everything for you. And instead of that, the Pharisees are stuck in this Old Testament mindset. What Jesus is saying is that ironically, God is actually here. You're trying to fast him down from heaven and he's standing in front of you in sandals and a robe. What are you waiting for? Is I think what Jesus is implying. He's all the way here. He's standing in front of you in Capernaum taking questions from the crowd. You don't need to fast. You need to feast. And in response to the nearness of God, this incarnate presence of Jesus, the right response is not a stage production of false piety performed by the local Pharisee community theater. The right response is to celebrate. You don't fast at a wedding, Jesus is saying. The implication is you are at a wedding. (laughs) Something is happening here that you're not grasping yet. This is likely just days after Jesus has joined Levi's dinner party, much to the embarrassment of the Pharisees. It's all connected. The contrast is stark, and I don't think it's lost on the crowd. Jesus is saying, when the groom comes to his bride and the two are joined, everybody celebrates. Now, what good could possibly come from silly, fake frowning at a wedding? Who would that help? It won't help you. It won't help the people who are celebrating. It won't help the rest of the wedding guests. This is a common thread through Jesus' teaching, that something new and unbelievably important is happening in him and through him. The Pharisees, you see, are hypocrites who would prefer to keep the people of Israel lost and dead as long as that means that the Pharisees get to keep playing their religion games. In Matthew 23, Jesus refers to them as a pit of vipers. I told you that. He also refers to them as a set of dirty used bowls that have been cleaned on the outside but still have nasty old food caked on the inside. Not a compliment. In Luke 15, Jesus implies that the Pharisees are choosing to stand outside of a different kind of feast, this time thrown by a loving father whose long-lost son has come home. In Matthew 20, the Pharisees are compared to workers in a vineyard who get jealous that their extra hard work to be religious and get everything right doesn't somehow earn them extra credit in God's kingdom, and the list goes on. This is the part that I have such a hard time wrapping my head around. If Jesus is the groom in this story, which he is, And if he has come to earth to reconcile all people to himself, which he has, that's the wedding, then rabbinic law, remember that sort of Book of Mormon-esque extra set of teachings? That rabbinic law actually protects everybody who goes to a wedding on a Monday or a Thursday. You didn't know that. If you're going to follow the whole rabbinic thing, there's actually a law built into that code that gives you license to abandon your fast on wedding feast days. Because even the Pharisees want to throw down on some wedding cake once in a while, okay? It's important to them, so they build it into their system. Listen to William Barclay. This is a commentary from 1956 on Mark's gospel. He says, after an ancient Jewish wedding, the couple did not honeymoon, but they stayed home for a week of open house in which there was continual feasting and celebration. For the hardworking, you can think the blue-collar class here in the West, this was traditionally considered to be the happiest week in their lives. The bride and groom were treated like a king and queen that week. Sometimes they even wore crowns. They were attended by chosen friends known as guests of the bridegroom, which means literally children of the bride's chamber. Their guests were exempted from all fasting through a rabbinical ruling that said, quote, all in attendance on the bridegroom 
are relieved of all religious observances which would lessen their joy. So why don't the Pharisees understand that feasting and not fasting is the right response to Jesus' coming? Why is it not obvious to the crowd why Jesus and his disciples do not fast when the Pharisees and the other sort of rabbi disciple groups around Galilee are fasting? Because they don't know who Jesus is. It's obvious to us now, isn't it? They can't understand what he's here to do. He's so different from what they expect that they don't acknowledge him as Messiah. It seems obvious to us that he's who he said he was. That, that who else could he be but the Messiah, the long-awaited king, the Christ? I love how C.S. Lewis describes how he first came to understand who Jesus was. He wrote about this in his memoir, Surprised by Joy. He says, here and here only in all of time, the myth must have become fact. The word must have become flesh. God must have become man. This is not a religion nor a philosophy. It is the summing up and actuality of them all. It's the realest thing on earth is what C.S. Lewis is saying. But to the Pharisees and to the general population of the region of Galilee, Jesus is still best understood as a new leader of an old religion, a philosopher here to reinterpret or clarify the teachings that the Jews have had for thousands of years. Now, thankfully, to the praise of the glory of God the Father, Jesus is entirely different from what anybody expected. And he came to do far more than just update the terms and conditions between God and humanity. He was and is himself the groom of the church, of all those who are drawn by the Father and who are made alive by the Spirit of God. So what does that mean for you and me? It means that unlike those disciples that are with Jesus in Capernaum that day, we're not just guests at a wedding feast. We're the bride. That's the way the New Testament describes the church, that Jesus is coming back again to eternally unify himself in a kind of spiritual marriage with us. Now, don't read into that too far. It's just an analogy, but the point is to help you understand that God is gonna bind himself to you in the highest order that we have. I mean, there's no stronger category of eternal commitment to another person than marriage, and that's the analogy that Jesus is using to describe what it is that he's doing eating freshly cooked fish on a Monday in Capernaum. His answer is, I'm here, and these guys get it, and so we're celebrating, and I have to go away again, but when I come back, everybody's gonna feast for good. Read the end of the book of Revelation and you'll see clearly that this is where we're headed. The wedding feast of the Lamb, what we do on a communion Sunday when we gather at the Lord's table is in itself a microcosm. It's a picture of what it means to sit with the groom and celebrate the wedding, the marriage, the reconciliation of all things to himself. It's the point. This is not really a teaching about fasting. I said that earlier and it's true. But we should understand that Jesus does still intend for us to fast as well. That's why he says he's going to go away and then people will fast again. You see, we live in tension between the new heavens and the new earth and the now, what we call sort of the already but not yet fulfilled kingdom of God. And so we should feast as Jesus' bride, but we should also fast as we await his return to come and finish reconciling the world to himself. The teachings and the practice of the Pharisees represent the old traditions. They add a lot to the Bible. They've made living with Yahweh way harder than it was ever supposed to be. And they've shaped the lives of countless people with their example and with their teaching, and yet they have not helped a single soul take a single step closer to God in all of the time that they've wasted with this teaching. The man-made rules and man-made traditions of the Pharisees have become stiff and brittle, and so what Jesus is doing when he talks about a new patch on an old garment or new wine and old wineskins is he's saying, the religious structures that you have cannot contain me. So don't be surprised when I'm not just a new patch on your raggedy old fast day clothes that you wear. 
I mean, I think he's literally talking to a group of people who are wearing special garments that they saved just for that day. And he's looking at the holes in their clothes and he's saying, you'd never put a new patch on that robe. I'm a new patch. This whole thing, not you individual people, but this system that you've built that's breaking the backs of people spiritually, it's old clothes. And I'm not just gonna sew myself onto what you're already doing. I am new wine. You are old wineskins. Don't be surprised that if you try to dump what I'm doing, my teachings, my ideas, into this old, rigid, brittle system that you have, if the whole thing explodes and your cellar floor winds up covered in wine. It's just, it's not, you can't just plug me into what you're doing and hope that things get better. I am doing something brand new. And that's why he says that the traditions are so broken and so poisonous that to try to assimilate the gospel of Jesus into the way of life of the Pharisees would actually ruin the effectiveness of Jesus' gospel. That's what he's saying when he says that it doesn't just burst the wineskins, it ruins the wine. For Jesus to hand his gospel over to a group of people who only know how to use it to manipulate others would be total failure of the kingdom. And so he won't. He won't just get in line behind the Pharisees and slowly create change from the inside out over several generations. He stands where he stands and he says, I'm here and I came to do something radical and we should all be eating together to celebrate that because it's good news. And yet here you are with your faces painted white and a big sad frown and dirty old clothes and your armpits stink and you're doing it because you think it's gonna get you into God's kingdom faster than me. And I'm telling you, you don't have to get to his kingdom. I brought it with me. Here it is. It's within reach. It's open to you. Come in. I'm the gate. I'm the way. Enter in through me. I showed you the teaching of the Pharisees earlier, their idea of this somber, joyless religion. Here's what Jesus would say. And this is what I would encourage you to practice. If you don't write anything else down today, I think this would be worth your time. Jesus would say that true religion is a joyful celebration of life with your greatest love. It's a marriage that never has to end with Jesus himself. And if you will practice like Jesus, you won't become like a Pharisee. You'll become like Jesus. Jesus is fundamentally different from the Pharisees. He's a new way to be human, and he is what we are all looking for. He is who we have been waiting for all this time. So hold that up against the teaching of the Pharisees and ask yourself, where will their kind of somber, empty spirituality lead you, and what do you want? I'll leave you with this quote from Henry Nouwen from his book, The Life of the Beloved. He asks a question. He says, aren't you like me, hoping that some person, thing, or event will come along to give you that final feeling of inner well-being you desire? The answer is yes, even if you don't know that about yourself. Yes, that's what's driving most of your decision-making in life. He says, don't you often hope, may this book, idea, course, trip, job, country, or relationship fulfill my deepest desire? But as long as you are waiting for that mysterious moment, you will go on running helter-skelter, always anxious and restless, always lustful and angry, never fully satisfied. You know that this is the compulsiveness that keeps us going and busy, but at the same time makes us wonder whether we are getting anywhere in the long run. This is the way to spiritual exhaustion and burnout. This is the way to spiritual death. It's the way of a Pharisee. So what do you choose? The joyless living death of religious practice with no point or the life-giving celebration of a God who came to you where you are and met you there to give you life. The choice is yours. You can choose to fast or you can choose to feast. You can choose gloom or joy. You can choose life or death. That's the choice that Jesus gave those people that day in Capernaum and it's the same choice that he gives to you. So, with that, I'd like to pray for you and ask God to make something of those ideas in our lives. Father, we love you. 
And I'm thankful that uh, you didn't resign yourself to the old ways, that when you did the work to visit the earth, to come to us and to our context, to know our trials and our struggles, God, to speak truth to us, that you did that even when it lost you some followers, God, even when there were times that you had to pay a cost of social standing or being considered to be respectful or part of the status quo. I pray, God, that you'd protect us. I think in any teaching that deals with you confronting the Pharisees, there's a temptation for us to believe that there's grounds to become these kind of weaponized, angry, violent people. And that's not the point of the story. The point of the story, God, is that there's an opportunity uniquely offered by you, the presence of you, your son, in our lives, opening the way into the kingdom of God for us, to us. God, may we have the faith to go that way with you. Maybe for some of us today, that would be, it's a brand new idea. We've never considered that before. We've been quite religious. We've sat in church a long time, but we've become more and more like Pharisees because that's the kind of faith that we're practicing. God, I pray that you just disrupt that, just rattle that enough that we begin to ask some questions about another way to go with you, the way of Jesus. And God, for those of us who would call Jesus our Savior and Lord and our King, would you just refresh that for us today? Remind us of why that's good and why, though it's harder to go with you, it's always better to go with you than to build our own fragile kingdoms out of your law and out of your words. We love you, Father, and we trust you. We're going to spend some time worshiping your name. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.